muscle mass is related to survivability in any kind of injury, in any kind of illness, the more muscle mass you have, the more likely you are to survive. Loss of muscle is not just a loss of aesthetics or a loss of performance. It's a loss of body armor. And you know, then the other thing is now you see a decrease in skeletal muscle mass, and then you see subsequent obesity. Blood sugar is high. Cholesterol is high. There's all kinds of things that end up happening that over the long term become issues. And then of course, cognitive impairment. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Dr. Lyon received her doctorate in osteopathic medicine from the Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine and is board certified in family medicine. She earned her undergraduate degree in human nutrition from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where she studied vitamin and mineral metabolism, chronic disease prevention and management, and the physiological effects of diet composition. She also completed a research clinical fellowship in nutrition science and geriatrics at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Lyon, welcome to the podcast. What is up? Thank you for having me. I love having conversations with anybody who loves talking about the importance of building muscle mass. So yeah. I'm glad to have you. Yeah, it's important. For sure. And I know there's there's a lot of people that I think by this time know why it's so important to build mm -hmm. muscle, maybe from an aesthetic standpoint or even from like a physical strength standpoint. But I know it goes so much deeper than that. So if you could walk the audience through, like, why is it so yeah. important to build muscle to optimize every single area of your health? Yeah, you know, I, I like how you pointed out that typically we think about muscle as it relates to looking good. And yeah. I would say that that's really the strong narrative around why muscle is so important, that and athletic performance. But if we approach skeletal muscle from a different angle, then we begin to understand that it is an endocrine organ. People are like, well, what? No, 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 it's true. Skeletal muscle, when it contracts, it secretes myokines. Myokines are proteins that travel throughout the body that have effect on the brain and the bone and actually even how we utilize nutrients. So for example, typically when we think about exercising for weight loss or exercising to metabolize calories, Muscle that contracts, when it releases these myokines, it helps guide the utilization of substrates, whether it's carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. This is very underutilized and not discussed in the science because it's, it's relatively new. This concept that skeletal muscle is an organ from the standpoint of science is new. Skeletal muscle, when we think about metabolic capacity, right? You think about diabetes, cardiovascular disease, heart disease. These are all diseases of skeletal muscle first, not adipose tissue. One has to understand, and I'm sure you've talked to your clients that in order to really move the needle for an individual, yes, it is about nutrition and exercise, but it really is about skeletal muscle. And there's so many domains. 
There is. There's there's so many domains. And one of the things that I think is most important for people is the impact it has on their metabolism. Because when you when you lift weights and you start to put on muscle, like people are always there. So they're always people are always looking to lose weight and burn fat. What people don't realize is the more muscle you have, it increases your body's efficiency to be able to do that thing. So if you could walk the listeners through like why yeah. that happens, because I think this is an important context for people. Yeah an important concept for people to, to understand. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When you think about skeletal muscle and you think about training for skeletal muscle, one has to understand that the ability to push metabolism, right? And metabolism is really just kind of these chemical processes in the body. But when you think about resting metabolism, so there's, you know, there's resting metabolism and then there's the metabolic process that happened during exercise. Resting metabolism is interesting. Skeletal muscle actually is only responsible for around 20%. So it's not much. And in fact, you could put on 10 kilograms of muscle and you would only be increasing your total caloric energy expenditure, maybe 60 calories a day at rest. Where muscle becomes really impactful is when you begin to train, when you begin to do physical activity, the percentage of calories that you can burn and the metabolic effect that it has, this is where the magic of muscle comes in. It really is through physical activity. It is through resistance exercise. It is through, you know, and maybe some people like to do high intensity interval training, you know, that's totally acceptable. It really is about that utilization of calories. So let's walk people through like how they can begin to resistance train and build muscle in the right way because yeah. i think a lot of people have this fear around it maybe they were somebody that lifted when they were younger and got mm -hmm. hurt during sports or maybe they they're somebody who's afraid they're going to bulk up too much or they see <laughs> they, they think of lifting weights and they think of like a big bodybuilder in reality right. it's just it's just not what it is so for the average person like what are your recommendations for somebody right. who's just looking to get back in shape and build some muscle Absolutely. Well, I will tell you the average person, it is very challenging, especially females to really put on muscle. And that I say, I would say is a very common thing that I hear, right? That is a very common thread. Oh my gosh, you know, Gabrielle, I don't want to, I don't want to get big. I don't want to get bulky. And, you know, I just, I don't feel comfortable lifting those heavy weights. And it's interesting. So then what happens is, is we kind of see a lot of women doing maybe five, five pound weights or 10 pound weights. And they, they look the same over a lifetime, right? Though there's the same people that you haven't seen them make gains. And the individuals that really move the needle for themselves are those that are actually putting in effort that really create somewhat of a situation where their body is required to grow. And that really comes from resistance training. And of course, volume is number one, volume and effort. There's some interesting studies for individuals that are older as well. When you think about volume and effort, there has to be this perceived effort. You have to be actually, I don't want to say lifting to failure, but lifting to a high degree of effort. And for my patients, I mean, they're training at least three days a week. That's the minimum, you know, especially depending on what the body part is, because if you want the body to change, you have to stress it enough and then you have to allow for it to recover so it's not just about resistance exercise. It is also about dietary protein, which as individuals age and or if they are overweight has to be consumed in a bolus amount, right? Because, you know, it's interesting. Some of the, the data that is coming out is the 
older muscle looks a lot like overweight muscle, obese muscle. So it becomes more resistant to protein and the wow. efficiency of protein, which is fascinating. So uh, before we get into proteins, I know that's something that you talk a lot about and it yeah. can be kind of taboo, I guess, with intention. I know, it's just so offensive for right. everybody. Um, but let's talk about like specifics in, in the resistance training. So let's yeah. just say that there's somebody in their, you know, ages 30 to like 50 and all they want to do is kind of just get back into shape or develop some muscle. I know you, you recommended three days a week, but minimum, yeah. minimum, like what type of volume, what type of exercises? Is it dumbbells? Is it barbells? Is it machines? Like, what do you recommend? So it really depends. You know, it's interesting because I would say exercise is much more customizable to the person than say nutrition. So for nutrition, we have foundation things that everybody should do, you know, for the most part, but exercise, it all depends on someone's training status. You know, I personally recommend compound movements. And I do think that going a heavier load, you know, you're hitting 12 to 15 um, reps, probably closer to 12, but really in that range. And again, compound movements, squats, deadlifts, those kinds of a thing where you're using your whole body. However, if a person is new to training and they don't even have the strength to be able to be impactful enough, then perhaps you can use kettlebells, right? Depends on the individual. Um, I do think that safety while frustrating at first is really important. And I, and I think one of the things that I deal with from a training perspective is a lot of people when they get older and they come to me and say they were doing our first session, one of the first things they'll say to me without even me saying anything is I don't want to bulk up. Do they really? Do they really say that? That is that is something that they they say. And mm. because, and I, and I think it's not that they don't want to bulk up. I think that there's a lot of people that equate lifting heavy to injury. Yes. And that's actually exactly what I was thinking. And rightly so. Um, I think that we often see people get injured. I mean, I, I send a lot of guys for regenerative care because they've gotten injured. And I think that that's where training before doing movements that perhaps you're not ready to do. And I'm guilty of this. I've torn both hamstrings. I really overachieved because, you know, just live. You're going to be, if you're going to be stupid, you better be hard enough to deal with it. Right. But I, I think that's a really bad way to do things because the recovery takes a long time. And yes, there is this capacity of injury that happens. You know, if we can catch people early, then you can train them up and realize that they can train hard when they are younger. And that's much better than trying to kind of make up for lost time and lost muscle tissue. Yeah. And I think sometimes what happens too, is that people, they think they can just go and start lifting the way they did 15 years ago and they haven't even lifted and they forget that there's this, this, this level of progression that needs to happen mm -hmm. in the weight room that where they can get to a place where they're lifting heavy. Cause it's funny. I'll have people that are like, I don't want to bulk up. I really don't want to get after it too much on the strength side. But when they start to see the benefits of even lifting a little bit, or they start right. to see some gains, they're like, wow, like I want to keep doing more of this. So in the gym, and when I, I'm going to kind of put a bow on this resistance training subject, like what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making in the gym people you work with when it yeah. pertains to working out and building muscle. Do you want to know the truth? Sure. Okay. This goes a little bit against what I said before. I would say that they don't trade hard enough. People overestimate the amount of effort that they're putting in because they're distracted because they're on their phone, but they are really not putting in the kind of effort necessary 
to continue to make forward progress, mm. hands down. Yeah. Perceived effort, you know, in your mind, like, oh, I did that set and, you know, that was hard. Well, I mean, that's hard is all relative. You know, were you, was your mind somewhere else? Are you tracking your weights? Do you know what you're doing? Is it, you know, of course there's a level of subjectivity, but they just, people are not training hard enough anymore. And so what do you think are the biggest markers for someone to know if they're actually pushing themselves to the extent that you want them to? I think that that's a really hard question. I don't know if I have a good answer for you. Do you, do you have a way that you do that? I don't know. I mean, I, I used to think it was based on how sore they are, but then now that I've learned that just them being sore doesn't, isn't right. doesn't indicate a super good workout. I mean, I think the, the best right. way that, that I track people's progress is that their weight keeps going up in the gym mm -hmm. when they're lifting weights, they can do certain exercises better. They can hold like a plank or something better. I mean, if we're doing conditioning, they can row yeah. like a, do a 500 meter row better yeah. with, with great form, the assault yes. bike. Um, and I also look at like how often they're getting injured because that's a good marker too. Like, mm -hmm. is their body actually adapting in a functional way? Like is exercise, which one of the biggest benefits of exercising is injury prevention. So that's an overlooked thing. I think as trainers, like when I first was a trainer, like one of the things that I always wanted to do was just crush somebody to the point where they were like ready to vomit. Cause they're like, yeah, I did a good workout. And I, as I look back, that was mainly just my own ego, but now it's like, I want clients to be happy and healthy and nice. How, and let me ask you this. How long did it take you to get there? How many years do you feel like you train clients where you just wanted to have them feel as if they had a workout or was the full vomit session, which I, I think is really, really fun. Those sessions are my favorite. Yeah, they're good. I just had one over the weekend with, with me working out with friends, but I wouldn't put every client through that. So it was probably a couple of years in. And I think one of my best friends said something to me. He was just like, you should be able to know exactly why you're putting every single exercise in your client's training program. You should like be that. able to tell me like why. Mm -hmm. And I, and it really gave me perspective on when I'm creating programs for people like, all right, like, why is this in uh, sure there's some fun exercises in there to, to help. Like, I mean, with, with, with certain things, but I'm always asking myself, like, is this necessary? Yeah. Very streamlined, very mature perspective. You know, we will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result, fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, You'll get 15% off. If you ask those that know me best, what has been an ongoing struggle of mine, it's definitely been my sleep. I am sure many of you can relate to this. One small change I recently made is that I started taking magnesium breakthrough by Bioptimizers, which is the only organic full spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium. I've taken lots of magnesium supplements throughout the last decade 
and this one is rare and that it actually makes me feel relaxed when I take it. Listen, if you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, one of the best things you can possibly do is start getting enough magnesium. But please do not run to the store to buy the first magnesium supplement that you find. Most magnesium supplements use only the two cheapest synthetic forms. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed by how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug and use the code Doug10 to save 10% when you try Magnesium Breakthrough. So go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug now to get your exclusive 10% discount. Now back to the show. One of the things that I see a lot of people struggle with is the recovery aspect and Mm. not just resting outside of the gym. It's eating enough protein. It's how much time they're taking off from lifting weights. So if you could speak to the protein aspect, because that's something that, you know, people either way under eat protein or they just eat all an all protein diet with nothing else. And it's like, you can't be an extreme on, on both ways, but like what's your advice for the average person when building muscle to optimize their protein intake? You know, I think that protein in and of itself right now is highly controversial. And I've been in this field for 20 years, right? So my current mentor who's mentored me for 20 years is one of the world leading protein experts. Dr. Donald Lehman truly is a profound scientist. And when I was going through undergraduate and even, you know, the last, up until the last 10 years, it wasn't so controversial. This concept of eating dietary protein being some moral issue, having it be bad for the planet. It's, it's very strange. You know, we've kind of watched it evolve and it was never that way. So number one, we have to understand that the conversation and the perception that people have of the industry and of protein is a bit jaded, truly just on a very fundamental level. So you have to think about that. And then when you think about the science of protein, really for individuals, I can safely recommend one gram per pound ideal body weight. And then you can titrate up or down from there, depending on a person's activity level, what they enjoy. But one gram per pound ideal body weight is a phenomenal number. It's defendable by science. According to the NHANES data, the average female consumes around 70 grams of protein a day. The average male is is hitting maybe 90 to 100 grams of protein a day, right? So this is the majority of individuals. That is not enough. When you think about building muscle, you think about somewhat of an energy surplus and having protein, quality protein, not, you know, plant protein is definitely different than animal protein. You do need the amino acids, especially if we're talking about skeletal muscle health then we have to mention the branched chain amino acids, which up until recently, we didn't believe could even be generated by anything other than the diet. So I think there, there's a lot of people that when they hear that they need to eat a gram per pound of ideal body weight, it might be super intimidating to them, I guess, initially, because they're not, they're barely eating any protein. So right. what are some easy ways that people may not, might not think about for them to actually get more protein in their diet that won't require a lot of time, won't require a lot of effort or anything like that? I mean, shakes are always great. And if individuals 
are a little hesitant to do the higher protein, you can easily add in a scoop of branched chain amino acids to what they're eating in, in a meal, in a lower protein meal as ways to just begin to have the body. I don't want to say fool the body, but, you know, really start to get in those essential amino acids in particular, the branch chains. But again, I think that it's transitioning to just better food choices because everybody's eating, right? You have to eat. And I guarantee you that if you just take a little bit of time and put a little effort forth, it's easy to do shakes. It's easy to do eggs. You know, there's protein bars. Now these things are very easy. Beef jerky, simple. Right. And it's funny. People will say like, Oh, like protein bars are so processed and beef jerk. And and I, I think if you eat the most whole form of protein, I think that's your best bet. But I think a lot of these protein bars and, and jerky, a lot of times can be better options than if you get the right kind, than what most people are eating anyway. And I think it's a good stepping Absolutely. stone for people just to get more protein and then eventually evolve out to out of eating processed protein sources to the more whole food sources. And why is it, why is protein though so important when it comes to building muscle? Like what is it about protein specifically that makes the muscles grow? Yeah, yeah. You need leucine to trigger this process of mTOR, which, you know, mTOR then goes and, you know, downstream you see muscle protein synthesis and the leucine amount is, is a branched chain amino acid. And that is really the key for muscle growth. You know, there's, there's, there's a couple different ways to stimulate mTOR, which is that mechanistic target of rapamycin which is that complex that goes on again, like I said, to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, and it can be stimulated by insulin and it can be stimulated by amino acids. And if you're younger, it can be stimulated by hormones, but overall in adult muscle, when you are thinking about muscle protein synthesis and really the health of skeletal muscle, it is dependent on those branched chain amino acids. Subsequently, you do need the entire spectrum of amino acids. You know, it's interesting, Bob Wolf, in, he was formerly at Galveston, Texas, came out with this paper where he was saying, you know, there's no point in, in just supplementing branched chain amino acids. And it got uh, quite a bit of conversation. I don't know if you saw that. It's, mm-hmm. I, I think it was an older paper, but Bob Wolf is really, so there's Don Lehman's kind of group. And then Bob Wolf was even before Don Lehman. So this guy is like an OG of um, protein metabolism. And the analogy that he gave is that it's like if you put a key into a car and you go to start the car, the car will kind of turn over. But in order to actually make the car run, you need all the amino acids. So his paper really talked about that branched chain amino acids alone are not enough. And he's right. Branched chain amino acids may get the process going, but you do need the full spectrum. And that's ultimately why protein is so essential for muscle. Right. And, and arguably, it's the most overlooked macronutrient. People are really big into keto for a while and focused a lot on fat. And even if it has muscle sparing properties, it becomes very difficult to maintain the quality of your muscle as you age. There are physiological changes that happen to skeletal muscle. It becomes more insulin resistant. It becomes more resistant to change. It's anabolic nature changes. And we see this, right? You see this in practice. And whether it's that people are not lifting hard enough or, you know, it's possible that their fiber types are changing, but really making sure that you have healthy skeletal muscle in your youth or even in midlife really changes the trajectory of the way that you age. You know, before we started recording, we were talking about cognition and I did uh, my research at WashU in obesity medicine, geriatrics. 
and um, nutrition. And I looked at the interface between body weight and cognitive health, cognitive performance. I did brain imaging. I did all this stuff. The wider the waistline, the lower the brain volume. Wow. More overweight an individual was over their lifetime, the more there was pathology in the brain. And that's actually what actually changed my entire thought process about medicine. And I realized that we were totally focusing on the wrong tissue because it was devastating. You know, you're seeing these people that have no idea what's coming. You're imaging your, their brain. And these are the people that have just constantly focused on Weight Watchers and constantly focused on kind of this body fat, you know, Jane Fonda, while Jane Fonda is amazing, you know what I'm saying? Like the leotard and the Pilates type situation and just really, really struggled and done a lot of yo-yo dieting. And man, the pathology and the brain changes are profound. And so what do you think that's caused by? Do you think it comes back to like a self-esteem? Does it come back to like low self-confidence when they see that their waistline getting bigger? Is there actually like a psychological and physiological change that's happening in the brain that's impacting it? There's a, there's changes in the brain. So, uh, Alzheimer's. And that was really where my work was. So I I did my fellowship in geriatrics and that was memory and aging. And ultimately Alzheimer's one, you know, some kinds of Alzheimer's and we're seeing a lot more of it now is type three diabetes, the brain. So it's a metabolic derangement of the brain from systemic adiposity, from an inability to manage glucose and insulin which is where muscle centric medicine came from because muscle we've been focusing on the wrong tissue. So everybody is focusing on quote body composition by focusing on body fat. That's not correct. We actually need to be focusing on skeletal muscle mass because as you pointed out, that's what's so important and so impactful because really it's your metabolic regulator. It determines your glucose utilization. It's a site of fatty acid oxidation. It is a substrate, uh, a site of substrate utilization. So that needs to happen. So um, yeah, the reality is that if you don't have enough, so insulin resistance begins in skeletal muscle first, before you gain weight, before you see adiposity is the defects in the skeletal muscle first. So we've gone over some of the dangers of not putting on muscle between some of these cognitive effects. Oh, it's uh, terrible. Obviously, we know like the metabolic and cardiovascular issues. Yeah. So let's talk about some others as people age. Yeah. What are certain things that can happen to them if they um, let their muscles atrophy too much? Oh, man. And you've seen it, right? Have you seen oh, yeah. the older individuals? So, and you knew, really you're thinking about sarcopenia and you see these individuals like almost shrink, right? Um, so muscle mass is related to survivability of all cause mortality in any kind of injury, in any kind of illness, the more muscle mass you have, the more likely you are to survive. It becomes very dangerous when the older an individual gets that loss of muscle is not just a loss of aesthetics or a loss of performance. It's a loss of body armor. Skeletal muscle mass is a kind of body armor. And as individuals age, when that goes, the capacity to protect against the outside environment, to protect against a fall, to protect against something where you're in, you know, on bed rest for some injury or something totally decreases. And, you know, then the other thing is now when skeletal muscle mass decreases, you see an increase in sarcopenic obesity you see a decrease in skeletal muscle mass, and then you see subsequent obesity, there is a total metabolic derangement that happens, 
right? Blood sugar is high. Cholesterol is high. There's all kinds of things that end up happening that over the long term become issues. And then of course, cognitive impairment. Right, right. Crazy. So I encourage everybody listening to start pumping those weights. I mean, it's devastating, right? And you know, it's interesting. And and I think that really having a good trainer is essential. So we have trainers on our team. You know, I always outsource to trainers because someone has to be in there making sure you're making progress, making sure that people are working hard enough, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so let's talk about types of protein to eat. I mean, I would say I have friends on both sides. I have friends that are plant-based. I have friends that are Mm -hmm. 100% carnivore, but I would say that they probably would agree on 80%, right? In the sense that, that, that you need to eat high quality foods, right? You do. So what, do you, what is your opinion on qu- the quality of protein? And let's just say you had to pick like one or two animal products and right. even one or two plant proteins that you think if you're going to get the highest quality from each right. one, like what would they be? First thing that we have to do is define quality. Protein quality is a non-negotiable number. Protein quality is a number that are, they are hard, fast, scientific numbers that come from looking at the amount of amino acids. It's reproducible, it's repeatable. And when an individual defines high quality protein, it's really about the essential amino acids. And that's where the marker of high quality protein comes from. So if essential amino acids define high quality protein. We know that animal-based products have the highest amount of essential amino acids. 20 grams of whey protein, right? Will satisfy all, you know, a large portion of all your amino acid requirements. Uh, Whey protein is fantastic. Any kind of red meat, whether it's beef or bison is also amazing. The reason I like The red meats is because it also has iron, zinc, selenium, B vitamins, creatine. There's a lot of nutrient food matrix aspects to that food product. When we talk about quality of protein, we must understand that plant-based protein is of lower quality. By definition, before there was any debate, these are hard, fast biological numbers. It takes six cups of quinoa to equal the protein density of a small chicken breast. This is purely non-emotional, not based on opinion, purely based on the amino acid profiles. That being said, can you be vegan and vegetarian healthy? Yes, you can. It just takes a lot more effort. You do, I do recommend either supplementing with an essential amino acid, you know, and then making sure you're getting enough iron and creatine some way And of course, meeting your amino acid needs. But, you know, I I will also say that there's some very interesting studies coming out that, um, you know, we expect vegans and vegetarians to be more protein deficient than they are. are. And one of the reasons, and again, this is very new science. One of the reasons is that there is some evidence that the gut microbiome actually is generating some essential amino acids. That individuals that eat a lot of plant foods their gut becomes more like a ruminants, which is cool, which is, it's still proof of concept. It's still very new. It's still very early, but fascinating. Yeah, it is. And I, and honestly, I'm not one for, for extremes personally. Like I think you gotta, you know, look at what the science says and then follow within your own personal preference, like where that follow your own personal preference, where it fits into that. 
There's a lot of talk now on the importance of getting things that are locally raised, that are sourced from the right yeah. places. Like, do you find that to be of importance or can someone get away with just going to the store and getting just the basic quality meat and seafood? I really like this question. And I think there's a little bit of complexity to it. The idea that I believe you're getting at is this concept of what is good for the environment, true, or also good for the environment and good for the human, right? Well, I, well, I think also that, that that there's now this narrative out that it's actually better for your health to eat like grass-fed beef, to eat wild seafood. And I'm just wondering, like, is the, does the health benefits of that outweigh the Not increased cost that it does for the average person? Yeah. So I don't actually think that it does. Okay. I think that, you know, the first, I don't think that finances should be prohibitive for individuals. If an individual cannot afford organic meat, they should get the meat that they can afford. Right. Okay. I also, and I believe in that very much because, you know, we have to understand that to the best of our ability and to the bet, you know, the, there are certain industry standards as it relates to hormones with beef, right? It can't have hormones. It can't have antibiotics when it comes to market. There are standards that hopefully are upheld and enforced and they're very tightly regulated. So let's shelf that conversation for a second and let's talk about, is it better to eat locally? Because I really like this question and there's a few reasons why I like it. A lot of people are talking about greenhouse gas and how eating meat is really bad for the environment. When you look at the data from the Environmental Protection Agency, you see that in the US, 80% of greenhouse gas comes from electricity, transportation, and industry. Of all greenhouse gas, it's roughly 9% from agriculture. Of that 9%, maybe 3.5% is from beef and cattle. So That's agriculture isn't lumped into industry at all. It's its own separate category. It's its own separate category. Got it. Got it. So all this conversation about the environment and that we should stop eating meat because it's impacting the environment is as it relates to the U.S. is completely misinformed, right? Now, does that mean that that doesn't, there aren't some implications and poor ways of doing things in other countries? You know, for example, India, for India has 10 cattle for every one of our cattle, which is right. crazy, right? So, you know, now it's very population-based. So there, there are issues. And of course, this is not a black and white conversation. And we have to understand that there is complexities to this conversation. So now this goes back to your question, should we eat locally? Well, there's a few reasons why I think that that's good. Because if you care about the environment, you are cutting down on transportation. Is it impactful enough to make a difference in greenhouse gas emissions? Probably not that impactful. That being said, if someone is saying they don't eat meat because it's bad for the environment, then it would be very hypocritical to be eating an avocado if you lived in Maryland, right? right. If that is what someone is saying. So Local is largely best, but also one has to understand that that is going to significantly limit what you're going to eat. And is it, should everything be grass fed, grass finished, free range? No, I think that that is, you know, we have, there are a couple issues here. We have a population to feed, 
that would be incredibly inexpensive practice to do it that way. For a you know a, a grass fed cow, a cow could be take ten years to mature. Can you imagine trying to feed everybody with that? It's just not realistic. So then the next question becomes, what are the unintended consequences of not having high quality protein? Well, you have to eat something and there's probably a broccoli threshold. So you're going to go to more processed carbs and fat, and then you get metabolic issues if calories are not controlled. And then now we're dealing with hospital costs. We're dealing with a drain on the economy. You're dealing with a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. And I think there's a way to do it, at least in my opinion, to kind of, if you're somebody that wants to eat less animal products that to eat you have to be super meticulous and you have to like be very motivated to stay consistent with getting enough black beans, like the right kind of like even tofu or um, Navy beans and stuff that's like high in leucine and, and making sure also that you are getting the right amount of animal products too, to support that. But I think the problem becomes that people, if they're eating for ethical reasons or they're going vegan, they automatically equate being vegan to being healthy, just like on the other side that people think that just because they're not eating carbs and they're not eating vegetables, that they can eat any meat they want. And that's healthy too. And Right. Right. And I have, I absolutely agree with you. I would say that I'm very much not an extremist, you know, I'm carnivore-esque by nature, but I'm not anti-plant and anti-fruit and anti, you know, I'm not anti-food group at all. Right. Which is why I wanted to bring you on because I know you're not, you don't like fall into the camp of no, super extremism because I'm not, you know, I think there's, there's room for whatever dietary pattern you, you or yeah. whatever personalization you want to choose based on the, the dietary pattern that is the most healthy. And so for that individual, for, right? that individual. for that individual, and we're very flexible. Humans are incredibly flexible and just think about it logically, right? Can you imagine people that live in Alaska saying, okay, well, I'm going to be vegan or vegetarian, that would be a really tough place to do it. You can do it, but if you are then going to be eating locally and only what grows, that's going to be tough. So, you know, I think that what you're saying is that there's, I totally agree. And people have evolved to have different, you know, they have different requirements and different microbiome. There's all kinds of things. So anyway, totally agree with you. Right. And I think sometimes we in the health and fitness industry get so caught up in these high level conversations around nutrition and health. And sometimes we, the people that we're trying to speak to, we need to just have basic conversations, right. About like how to make these simple changes. Cause let's face it, you know, the most people in America, what they're eating is highly processed food, loaded with sugar, tons of soda, tons of fried foods. They're not eating anywhere remotely close to the, the things that you and I are, are talking about. And so one of the other food groups, I feel like every macronutrient is controversial in some way, but I think the other one that is can be super important for building muscle is carbs. Um, and mm-hmm. I think people can overdo it with carbs and I think people can underdo it with carbs. So how do you feel about carbohydrates and uh, how, do you, how, how can somebody implement them yeah. in an effective um, muscle building plan? Yeah, you know, Carbs are not the enemy, despite what you hear. They're absolutely not. And when I think about carbohydrates, I don't actually think about how many carbs in a 24-hour period. I think about carbohydrates in a meal threshold amount. And I think about how do we deal with the carbohydrates and how much insulin is it going to take to get rid of the carbs that you're having? 
a sedentary individual or someone who is not training at the moment, you're talking about 40 to 50 grams of carbs per meal, right? And so the RDA is, I think, 130. The average American is eating 300 grams of carbs. It's too much. Unless, of course, you're earning your carbs through training. And the data would suggest that if you are training upwards of 120 beats per minute, that there is, you know, you can consume carbs, whether it's, you know, 30 to 70 grams an hour, right? And 30 being on the very, very low end, upwards of the 70 grams, you could utilize that. I like to think about it as, again, a meal threshold, and that's 40 to 50 grams per meal and not to exceed that because then you get a subsequent insulin spike. And so that would be how I would think about it. And the more you're training, and of course, if you're trying to put on muscle, um, and you're trying to repeat, replete glycogen, then carbohydrates are the way to do it. So how do you feel, how is, how do you feel about it how, as it pertains to like nutrient timing? Like, mm-hmm. do you feel that there's benefit to getting a good hard workout in and then eating your carbs after that workout? Or do absolutely, you think- I do, I do for glycogen repletion. Absolutely, again, carbs are not the enemy. So, absolutely, and then of course, for repair, you also have to think about protein. Right, for sure. Well, yeah. So I think I don't remember what the old ratio is. It's been a while since I've looked at it, but it used to be like one to two or one to three from protein to carbs. If you're training like hard after a workout, yeah. not not throughout the day, but like to really get in like a good amount of protein, good amount of carbs, like within like, I don't know, an hour or two after your training session. And, you know, there's some debate on that. People will say, well, you know, you don't really need protein right after you work out. And I would argue and say, okay, but if you're aging or have any kind of metabolic dysfunction, you should have protein after you work out, right? The ability to then stimulate muscle protein synthesis is essentially kind of amped up. There's blood flow to the nutrient. There's blood flow to the muscles. You'll be able to bring nutrients in. Why not? Why would you not do that? Yeah. Yeah. I, remember, I used to hear like in the fasting camp yeah. that if you didn't eat until like two or three hours after you worked out, you would get some anabolic effect. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there's any truth to that, but I think for the average person that is wanting to just get started with like working out and lifting weights, like yeah, that shouldn't even be like anywhere near their radar. What this should be other focus is making sure they're getting the resistance training workouts in, making sure they're getting enough protein and making sure they're recovering well, and then everything else is just a bonus. Yeah. Yep. I, I mean, I think that you're pro. I think you've been doing this for a long time. Well, I mean, I, I, well, I've had a lot of experience too, and I've done a lot of things wrong. Like I said earlier on, there's been times where I've trained people and I've looked back now at some of the workouts I put people through and I'm like, like, why did I do that? <laughs> why did I do that? Yep. You know, I think that there is this, it's interesting. I do think being able to have conversations where people do not demonize whether it's protein, carbohydrates, or fat are really important. And it would be amazing if we took out the emotional aspect of eating. And I don't even know how it became so emotional. You know, in our household, it's not. The only reason I get really amped up about protein is because I've seen the end result, right? So I see all the misinformation out there. I've studied this stuff for 20 years. I've worked in nursing homes. There's all this argument, you know, I look around and I see all this argument and all this misinformation kind of from 30 to 50, everybody's bickering and, you know, this way is better and this way is better. And then what happens is kind of like in your fifties, you realize that if they don't get it together in their fifties, their sixties or seventies, what that looks like, that whole conversation is totally different. No geriatrician is arguing 
about this stuff, right? We have a really good sense that skeletal muscle needs to be prioritized. We know that the healthier the skeletal muscle is, how important it is for aging. And we're talking about like life or death type aging. You know, we're talking about if someone falls and breaks a hip, you know, it's not just starting in your seventies when that's a problem. It's starting midlife, right? These behaviors and what's happening. This is a midlife kind of a thing. Well, there's other things to, to keep in mind that we don't even think about what that comes with training are improved uh, coordination, improved balance. You're strengthening muscles and you're getting more flexible. You're getting more mobile. And as long as you're doing the right protocols around that. And I think people just equate muscle, building muscle to physical strength, like we were saying at the beginning in aesthetics. And it's so much deeper than that, especially as we get older. So I know you did a lot of research and studying on obesity. Mm-hmm. And let's just say there's somebody listening to this, or maybe somebody has a child or a friend that's like a hundred pounds overweight. And they may be afraid of going in and, and lifting weights. Cause they're like, Oh my gosh, like, am, are my joints set up for this? Am I going to get hurt? Like what's, what's the right protocol for them to get started? Or is it any different? You know, I would say, um, it's not different. And I think, I think you have to listen to your body early on. Right. If you listen to your and I wouldn't necessarily say that later on, because I think that our body can give us cues that are perhaps are they cues or is it, you know, telling you to sleep in? I I don't think that that's the right thing. But early on, you have to understand that that there there's a a certain amount of caution that happens. And I think that that's if an individual is going to be cautious, that's the right time for it. Right. Right. You know, sure. Yeah. I think the hardest part is just the fear of judgment. Like once you get past mm. that, when you walk in the gym, I think a lot of the fears around exercising kind of come off. Like once you realize that the people in the gym are more worried about themselves and what they're doing versus you, it becomes, in my opinion, much easier to walk through those doors knowing yeah. that I might, might not be as strong as that person or might not be as fit as that person, but at least I'm in there <laughs> like working on myself. Yeah. So have you ever had to like walk somebody through that, that was so terrified of going in the gym because of the way that they looked or the way somebody else looked? Yeah. They... And, and I think that that's a lot of kind of, so yes. And I think that things are only fearful if you let them fester, right? right. It's that, um, you know, it's kind of like the project that you put off that you have to do. It's only, it's, it, it becomes much bigger than actually just doing the thing. Yeah. You just have to do the thing. And then the rest you realize is just internal dialogue that if it's not at that thing, it's going to be somewhere else. And right, so there right. becomes this habit of just executing regardless of, you know, the fear and the, this, this stuff. Right. I think the fear of the outcome becomes bigger than the fear itself. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you just do it. Right. Right. Right, and so, and people could say, oh, yeah, that's so easy for you to say. But it, I mean, no, whether it's working out in the gym or going to a fellowship that's way over your head or doing the, you know, five million other things that people go through in their life. This is just one example of doing something that is highly uncomfortable that an individual is feared that they'll be judged for. Right. Absolutely. So, like, I guess, like, the last thing I want to chat with you about is productivity. Like, mm-hmm. you're, you're a mom. You're married, yeah. you got a business, you're like working on a lot of other things. Yeah. Like what are, what are your non-negotiables for yourself when it comes to 
being productive so that you can exercise, you can take care of yourself personally and professionally, you can meal mm-hmm. prep, you can do all the things. Like, what are some of the things that help you do that? Um, so I have a, a pretty rigid schedule. I get up early and it doesn't matter how tired I am. I go to the gym. So I'm at the gym before seven and I train for an hour. If I have to get extra baby care, I get extra baby care. Now I don't have one child. I have two. I have an eight month old and a daughter who's a little over two years old and a husband who's in full-time medical school who gets up at four 30 and is out the door. So I put that into place and it's just what I do no matter what. Go ahead and do that. And then in terms of time, you know, everything is is allotted. There's a scheduled time. I am not a fan of really taking time off. People, you know, whatever. It's just not my way. What I will do is, although I will always schedule time with my family every day, there's a blocked off time where starting at six o'clock, there's no phone, there's no nothing, and it's family time. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, t- it takes being disciplined and consistent because yeah. that's what I think adds up over time is just yeah. staying consistent, being disciplined, doing the things you know you need to do every single basis to yeah. better yourself. All right. So my last question for you is say you had only five foods to pick and you, and you had to include every macronutrient within them, mm-hmm. which what would your five foods be to keep yeah. in your house? So I would choose beef. I would choose a berry. I would choose like an anthocyanin. I would choose a blackberry. I would choose kale for the greens. I would choose eggs for the choline. And I probably, my kids would kill me. I mean, I might arguably, I guess I can't pick liver. I have to, to pick some kind of other carbohydrate. Um, Cause then my husband would just fall apart. Probably maybe a sweet potato which I don't even eat, but I'm, I mean, you said I had to pick five and this was all that's going to be in my house. So the sweet potatoes for my kids, but I never eat that. Love it. So this has been great. I mean, I like how we dove super deep into the topic of muscle building muscle, how to sustain it, how to do it properly. Um, We talked about protein. We talked about like all the things. So if people want to find out more about your work, find out more about your protocol that you have, where's the best place for them to find you? So you can find me on Instagram. I'm very active. Um, and that's Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Also, I'm building out my YouTube where I do a lot of education and a lot of education with my mentor. I also have my PA on there, the cardiologist in our practice and um, a PhD from Princeton. Her name is Alexis Cohn. She would be great on this podcast. And just, we have really good conversations in the, and we give it all away. And the goal is really to just educate because of all the noise out there. And then my website, obviously, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, they can sign up for my newsletter, which I curate and there's a free protocol, which they should get now because it will be coming down soon. Cool. Well, thank you so much once you again bet. for coming on. And for those listening, there was a lot we talked about. Um, I tried to keep it as simple as possible because I know mm-hmm. sometimes we can get in the weeds on, on talking science and talking building muscle. And, um, and so hopefully y'all got a lot out of this. And what I would like you to do is share a takeaway with maybe something that Dr. Lyon said on the importance of building muscle. Maybe it was something that she said about resistance training, protein, whatever it was, um, tag her, tag myself. Thank we'd you. To, yeah, yeah, we'd love to hear your feedback. And uh, we once again, thank you listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.